on Commons People this week. It feels better each day I wake up. Well, Tom Watson's in a good mood. Actually change our name to the Workers' Party or the Conservative the workers, workers' Party. Up the workers, the Tories turn on each other. And that's why I have chosen to step down as leader of the Liberal Democrats. Oh, at least someone's resigned. All of this and more on Commons People. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the HuffPost UK's politics podcast with me, Owen Bennett, Paul War, and the newest member of our team, Rachel Wearmouth. Hello, Rachel. Hello. How are you? Very well, thank you. Yes. You're, very, you're very excited to be here. I am indeed. Yeah. yeah? <laughs> Isn't everyone? It's a good new person, Paul. I know. Me. No Ned or Kate this week. I know, sadly. Why sadly you, missing. You've let them out a day off, haven't you? I know, I can't believe I did that. I know, that was a moment of weakness on your part, I think. I know. Anyway, let's crack on because there is a lot to talk about. So let's start, first of all, with the fact that Theresa May has ordered a full public inquiry into the devastating fire which engulfed Grenfell Tower in London in the early hours of Wednesday morning. As we record this, there are 17 confirmed fatalities, although that is expected to rise in the coming days. Uh, Residents of Grenfell Tower said they raised multiple concerns about the risk of fire in the months leading up to the blaze, but these were brushed away by the council's tenant management organisation. There's also lots of questions uh, being pointed at the government, in particular Theresa May's new chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, who before he was boosted out of office by the electorate last week, was actually the housing minister. Now, here's a clip of him from October last year when he was asked about some building, reviewing some building regulations. Now, this had been ordered to be done by an inquest after another tower block fire claimed lives in 2009. Here's his response about when the uh, reviewing of these regulations would take place. Mr Speaker, um, we have not set out any formal plans to uh, review the building regulations as a whole. However, we have publicly committed to review Part B uh, following the Lake and All House fire and we've made a commitment during the passage of the Housing and Planning Act to review energy efficiency standards for buildings in Part L. Steve McCabe. As you can see, kind of kicked into the long grass. Now, earlier on this week, Paul Walk caught up with Labour MP Jim Fitzpatrick, who is a former firefighter, so the kind of man who knows what he's talking about. And here is uh, his thoughts on uh, what, what potentially could have happened at Grenfell Tower. If this building was being constructed today, it would need far greater fire protection. And because of its height and its residential risk, it would need fire sprinkler systems fitted. Um, because it was built in 1974, that's not a requirement. That's one of the reasons why we've been asking for an urgent review of the fire safety uh, regulations in approved document B, because we need to keep up to speed with developments in construction and developments in risk and better ways of protecting people. So obviously, again, when we record these podcasts, it seems to be a bit of tragic news every time we do it now. Um, this one, whereas with the terrorist attacks, we know who was to blame. With this, we're, we're still none the wiser. And is it too early for people to start making political points out of it, Paul? Well, um, Mike Penning, who we'll hear from later, um, another former firefighter and an MP, suggested it was too soon. However, I, I, I personally think that this is about public housing, it's about social housing. It's inevitably, therefore, going to be about politics because it's about resources. This isn't a private estate. This is about part of the state. And from Labour's point of view, I talked to someone very senior yesterday who said, actually, this could be a parable parable of, of sort of austerity in 2017. You know, it could be all about inequality and austerity and where is Britain now? And that's why it's quite difficult for the government because this... 
you know, the sheer scale of this tragedy, and we think there are going to be many more dead, unfortunately, um, could make this quite a, 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 a sort of a, a big historic moment for Britain. Is there, is there a moment where everyone steps back and says, what do we treat really importantly and what don't we? Uh, Jeremy Corbyn has said questions need to be asked, answers need to come out, but today, Thursday, as you recall, this, he went down and met some of the people who survived there, Theresa May also went down today and met some emergency services. As you said, here's Mike Penning, a uh, Tory, former firefighter, who's actually sacked from the government this week, but here is his, uh, his take on events. I, well, firstly, I, I think um, it, it probably needs to wait and find out exactly what's gone on. But there clearly was a huge amount of money spent on this building to make it look nicer. Yeah. So the money was available, and then there's been a conscious decision on how the money was spent. So yeah. it's not shortage of money. It's actually an argument about how it's been spent. Um, yeah. You know. Um, so, I yeah. mean, the, the cladding on the outside of that building would have cost millions. Do you reckon? Really? So, oh, I would have thought so. Wow. It's a 23-storey building. It's scaffolding itself, I would think, when it comes to more than a million pounds. So how... If, if we Do you think this is a political thing. Gavin Barwell seems to be the guy that people are talking about at the moment as the guy who perhaps should take responsibility for the fire regulations, that kind of stuff. Is this something, are we going to see Are we going to see the trees and to sack her new chief of staff so soon or will she be able to ride this one out? Um, well, Gavin Barwell was considered a very safe pair of hands before he uh, went into the job so it's very early to have such serious questions about, um, about how he's conducted business in the past so um it's not exactly the best start for him is it no it's really difficult because you know obviously we don't know whether or not it's directly due to the building regulations but it does feed into this wider sense of how in touch is the government how you know theresa may suffered at the general election because she was seen as not just being a maybot a robot but that fed into a wider perception is this government in touch with the people and love him or hate him, and lots of people did hate him to start off with, Jeremy Corbyn is now seen as the populist, the man who actually today showed a politician's announcing going down, meeting the residents, talking to them in person. You know, the, the contrast between that and Theresa May come, going there, not meeting residents, and going back to number 10, then announcing from the sort of ivory tower of number 10, a public inquiry, um, felt quite stark that difference, and you know you'll you'll definitely see tomorrow uh, in all the papers. I suspect Jeremy Corbyn hugging members of the public, or them coming up to him, feeling comfortable enough to go and give him a hug. And can you ever imagine anyone doing that with Theresa May? Of course, she's prime minister; she's got bodyguards, so it's difficult. But what I, I'm baffled by is why she didn't announce the public inquiry there in a community centre. Get a few, three or four or five community leaders around you and the police, and make a statement to camera and tell them what you're doing. It's kind of basic, fundamental politics that I just think shows a lot about this number ten operation. I mean, with, with the regulations, this goes back to, like I said, there was a fire in Clarkham in 2009, and the inquest in 2013 said the, the building regulations that are used, which cover what you can and can't do when you change things on the outside of these tower blocks, whether or not they are safe or not, they haven't been changed for years and years and years. And the government just kept kicking this into touch. And another thing they were asked to do after another fire, which claimed the lives of two firefighters in Southampton in 2010, another inquest, I think it was in 2013, said that there should be sprinkler systems retrofitted into all tower blocks, all high-rise buildings. And the government minister at the time, Brandon Lewis, stood up in the House and asked about this and said, this is not the government's responsibility. His justification was, you know, this is for the market to sort itself out. We're not going to tell everyone to put sprinklers in. I mean, if you're going to write a parody of a Thatcherite's 
approach to a problem, that would be it, wouldn't it, Rachel? I mean, it just seems so callous. It, it does certainly appear callous, yeah. Um, it's something that they're definitely going to be, have to look at now, isn't it? So um, I know that they haven't had sprinklers in um, Grenfell Tower Block, and that's come up time and time again. So um, it's a question that is going to continue to be asked of the government now. Yeah, I think that that's going to be part of the inevitable inquiry. But the, as Jim Fitzpatrick said to me this week, you know, don't expect easy and quick answers for all this, not just for the causes, but some of the other deep-seated problems around some of these tower blocks and the fire safety. It might take a, quite a while for this to come out. I think the, the point that you made earlier, I think, is really interesting, that sometimes there are events, culture, there are events, tragedies in this country which happen, and they take on an almost cultural significance. I'm thinking of Hillsborough, some of the great train tragedies there's been, and these are seen as the real line in, line in the sand moments. Do you think that this has the potential to be one of those that, that Grenfell becomes a shorthand almost for lack of state intervention, for government not caring enough? Um, Jeremy Corbyn's statement today seemed to, to echo a little bit of Hillsborough when he said um, the truth will have to come out I mean so he's already perhaps spotted that this is a big moment for the country I think that's right I mean it feeds into a wider perception of the sort of austerity program you know people were complaining local residents they couldn't get legal aid to fight legally in the courts against the company that was putting some of this refurb in or is, is running their local estate it goes back to the whole Thatcherite approach in the 1980s I remember when councils were basically told you can't build more council housing you've got to hand over control of tenancies to new arm's length companies you know new labor continued with that and thought it was okay and kept it off the balance books but you know we, maybe we're seeing a re-evaluation of all of that and also crucially i think people have just been ignored for quite a long time people who live on council estates they've been treated like an almost underclass they don't matter they don't have a voice how many how many people in parliament actually have lived in a council house how many of them uh, ministers have treated council housing like a bit of a political football um you know it's it's one thing that may come out of this is that real people with real lives living in council housing. And the story also tells a, a real stark contrast between the wealth in the area um, and the council housing in the area, so it will bring that extra focus exactly, because of that. People th hear the word Kensington and they think of, you know, um, well, the wealth and the made in Chelsea kind of aspect of it, and actually it's, it's, not, like, it's not all like that, is it? Um, Okay, so obviously we shall wait to see um, how that develops. I'm sure it will. Let's go back inside the House of Commons now. And obviously Labour, uh, well, they can't quite believe what's happened. They managed to, to defeat the Prime Minister and not win an election, but they're still terribly happy about the whole thing. I caught up earlier this week with Cat Smith, who was elected in 2015, used to work for Jeremy Corbyn, one of the people who nominated Corbyn for leadership not to broaden the debate because she wanted him to win, and is now uh, shadow voter engagement and youth engagement in the shadow cabinet um, and I asked her first of all about just how Jeremy had managed to attract so many young people to vote Labour. Uh, well I think the young people have always been engaged in politics and that's certainly something that I've discovered you know being a member of parliament for a constituency that contains both two universities and a nautical college. I have a lot of young uh, people who live in my constituency and the engagement in politics was never the issue. It was the engagement with political parties, it was the seeing a party that had an offer that gave them enough motivation to go out and vote. But I think that it's important to not just think about young voters as being maybe under 21s. We're talking about really under 35s, really, seeing an offer 
that meant something to them. So if you look over the past uh, seven years, young people's wages have just failed to keep up with prices, and that's something that's affected not just sort of your university student, but also basically anybody under 40 has really suffered under the Tory government. And then after that, I asked her whether she felt that this this sort of success of Labour, Labour had in the election would bring the party back together, make them more united? I think there was probably, before the election was called, an idea that um, that Labour would go into this election and maybe come out with 150 MPs or something, and that didn't happen. Um, although we sadly lost a few seats, uh, we gained far more, and we've proved that the policy offer and the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn can, for the first time since ninety-seven, see us gain seats off the Tories in the way that we have. Um, in the numbers that we have, um, and increase, you know, our share of the vote, and uh, I think that's that's just proved that we can do it. And it's I think proved that Jeremy can do it. Yeah, it's proved Jeremy can do it because there was a there was a lot of doubt, and it was a. Did you ever ever have any doubt? I think that all members of Parliament constantly question about, you know. What is the right direction? I suppose there are members of Parliament who agree with the policies but don't think they'll work with the public, and there are obviously going to be some that might not agree with the policies as well. But um, there's a whole diversity within the Parliamentary Labour Party about how they feel about both the politics and the leadership. But I think that now the vast majority are all in the same place of saying, do you know what, we can do this, we can do it on this policy offer, and we can do it with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership as well. Finally, we were recording this into Hot Boss Forum on Wednesday. We, this goes out on the podcast on Thursday, so this question might be redundant by then. <laughs> but John McDonnell was very clear, he wants to keep the winning team together, the Shadow Cabinet winning team, which you're mm. a part of. Some of the people who have been opposed to Jeremy in the past, Yvette Cooper, Chukramuna, Stephen Kinnock, for example, have also said they want to come back, they want to serve. What do you think should happen now? Do you think you should keep the winning team together or it should be broadened up to bring in everyone? I think we've got to be ready to go into a general election, possibly in the next couple of weeks. Let's face it. I mean, as you say, we're speaking on Wednesday afternoon. We still don't have a date for the Queen's speech. There's still no deal being announced with the DUP. We don't actually know now whether or not the Conservatives can even hold this together as long as getting a Queen's speech. So we have to be ready to go to the country and offer our leadership, offer to serve. And I think that a, a big change at this point would be foolish. So since that interview, we now know the date of the Queen's speech, which is uh, next Wednesday, and there has been a Labour reshuffle. Cat kept her, kept her place. I mean, it was a tiny reshuffle, wasn't it? But it's significant because Owen Smith is now back in the Shadow Cabinet. Yeah, which is quite interesting. It shows that there's some sort of olive branch is being offered by Jeremy. Um, but, you know, equally, he's sort of hitting over the head people like Chukka Amunu and Yvette Cooper with that olive branch by saying, yeah, yeah, you can't come in. And even, um, even Vernon Coakery was shown in Northern Ireland for years and yeah. knows it on the ground really well. And yeah. been but I think the, one of the interesting things was um, the fact that Ian Lavery got actually the post of chair of the party um, and that was taken away from Tom Watson. Now, not a big deal was made out of it and Tom Watson certainly doesn't want to make a big deal out of it, but it, it felt like a very symbolic attempt to say, look, we're in charge now. Um, you know, no more messing about. Well, we've got the interview with Tom Watson. He actually, he actually brings that up unprompted. Ah. And he's quick to get in. I'm very pleased with Ian Lavery, he says. Before I, I didn't even ask him about it. Um, what do you think, think of this, sir, Rachel? Do we think that Jeremy Corbyn did the right thing by not making massive changes? Or do you think he had an opportunity here to perhaps bring in the other churches of the party and he just said, no, you're not, you don't worship my altar enough? Um, if that I, makes sense. I, I, <laughs> I think it probably it would show to somebody who's already perhaps not not a fan of his that um, 
he feels perhaps still slightly insecure about his leadership, but I think to his supporters, it will just encourage them to support him all the more because they'll say, yeah, why should you bring in these people who have been um, so mean to you in the past? So um, I guess it depends on your, your view of Jeremy Corbyn, but he's in such a strong position now and um, he doesn't... Uh, he probably feels no pressure to, to give out jobs to anyone. I was talking to a uh, Tory MP the other day and he said that he was aware of rooms that have been booked, uh, offices that have been booked by Labour leadership hopefuls in anticipation of a leadership challenge after the election. And obviously, that's all completely full of the wayside. Paul, we've been in Parliament this week. It's not The House hasn't been sitting. I mean, they came back for one thing to talk about... I don't know, what the hell, what the hell was that about the other day when they came it back? It was a speaker just, election. That was it, a speaker election. I, I, I'm on the ball. Um... Well, the atmosphere is really weird, right? It's completely different. I you mean, went to PLP. PLP, usually you come back and you tell us about the blood on the walls, but this well, time... Yeah, two peace things changed this week. First was that the Parliamentary Labour Party was not a sort of, uh, you know, fight night um, Were you disappointed at all. by that? Uh, I was, obviously. Um, no, uh, but everyone there came out, even Corbyn Skeptics came out and said how well he'd done and he delivered a very good speech and there was a, a unifying message, which is why the Shadow Cabinet moves, you know, have uh, got to be watched quite closely because, you know, unity cuts both ways, I think, for a lot of the PLP, that, you know, you, you, given that they're now showing loyalty, I think they expect uh, the leadership not to be divisive and sort of go out of their way to try and uh, go after people, should we say. Um, but, yeah, so the mood in the PLP was different. Mood in the House was very different. You, you know, when the election of the Speaker took place, it was obvious all these Labour MPs, new Labour MPs, thumbs up, backslapping, laughing, joking. The Tory benches were completely ashen behind a leader that none of them now really have any confidence in. That difference, the mood it's of the amazing, House was very stark. It's amazing how it's changed. And that's how democracy works, Love you know. Let's, let's listen to... I, I caught up with Tom Watson earlier today, on Thursday. Uh, let's have a, a little listen to him. The full, the full 50-minute uh, versions interview, the full uncut, as Tom Watson would say, being a music fan. It will be also up on our website as well, and you can download it. But here's uh, a couple of clips of Tom Watson from earlier today. Now, with the benefit of uh, four or five days of proper, unbroken sleep, it feels better each day I wake up. But you're still in opposition, so why does it feel so good? Well, uh... You see, this whole election, it feels like something has changed, right? Firstly, there's a new spirit of optimism in my own party, which is obviously great, uh, given where we've been for the last 18 months. Uh, but secondly, you see, I think those issues that were debated in the election have been brought to the fore now. You, you know, Labour, for the first time in a long time, offered... I mean, Jeremy talked about a transformation of the country. What it is is an economic realignment, isn't it? The idea that natural resources can be socially owned was an idea that I think took root in the minds of people up and down the country. Uh, and so I think it gives us a terrific platform that we can build on when that next election comes from. And the, the spirit of enthusiasm and hope from all the young people that are involved in the party and felt that they had a stake in the outcome of the election is something that I think is, is terrifically exciting and uh, yeah, puts us near to government whenever that election comes. You've been involved in many leadership campaigns, uh, sorry, many election campaigns rather, and um, people always try to get the youth out, especially Labour, they always hope they can get the young people to come out and vote for them. How come Jeremy could do it in a way which other leaders seem not to be able to do? I think there's a lot of reasons on that. I think there's his own leadership qualities. Um, I mean, just the idea of resilience, uh, you know, I mean, this is the most tested leader I've ever known. Um, 
but the but also you know let's be clear about it we have we have very clear bold transformational policy pledges that that people were attracted to so you know if you're a student then obviously the idea of starting your working life without being saddled with debt was a big issue but also the thing you know you know it's not necessarily the central plank of the election but i thought our arts policy was terrifically engaging you know there was a whole idea you know the stuff we wanted to do on the national education service to give sort of people decent educations and look at you know, all sorts of things from how you teach creativity to how you structure access. I just think it gave people a sense that we can live in a different society, that things can be fairer. And you and the contrast that people made between, you know, a very weak Prime Minister and a manifesto that just offered, you know, utter misery for every citizen, carrying the can for, uh, you know... A, economic decisions made many years ago uh, you know people rejected that I mean so it feels like you know we got the chance to be heard a second time in this election and that they rejected Theresa May's vision of uh, you know whatever conservative society she believes in I guess the, the big question for yourself and other people in the Labour Party is were you wrong about Jeremy Corbyn um, you mean with the second leadership challenge? Yeah, or, I mean, and, and yeah. just the, the general feeling that Jeremy Corbyn couldn't, wouldn't be help, wouldn't deliver any good results in an election. Well, I think if you look at election punditry, the entire infrastructure of civic society was wrong on this election, weren't they? Pollsters, commentators, journalists, other politicians. You know, I mean, everyone thought that Theresa May were, was going to be uh, sort of almost crowned in this election, rather than to go out and. Uh, go go out and uh, be defeated, uh, and I think I think a combination of Jeremy's leadership resilience, of an exciting manifesto, her weakness, you know their manifesto was laced with hubris. Um, you, you know this sort of sense of entitlement that their campaign gave, whereas Jeremy, you know, incredibly humble in his campaign in the way he stopped to talk to the public, laid himself open and accessible. So, you know, I think that he has proved all his critics wrong. Does that include uh, you, do you think? Well, I mean, you know, I've not... The only... I mean, I've not publicly criticised him. My, I voiced my concern last year when, uh, you know, we had the sort of... Um, the sort of... The second challenge and the vote of no confidence. Uh, but for the PLP, that the line was drawn under that in his second election. And, you know, what what really pleased me about this campaign was more or less it was an entirely unified and focused campaign where he called the shots, it was his election, and we gave it him. And um, uh, and the party gave it him, the MPs gave it him, Labour voters gave it him. And so I hope now that, and I'm pretty confident of it, that we'll, you know, it, with a new spirit of unity and joy in everyone's heart, we'll go out there and campaign for a more socially fair society. So he says there, a noble gesture bringing Naomi Smith back, but he says that the entire infrastructure of civic society was wrong on the election, one of the things. And he talked about the, pre- the press as well, and he says that he felt that this was the first, so he felt this was truly the first social media election. Rachel, what do you think? Do you think this was the, the election where finally those, those, those old school printed newspapers who we don't even look at anymore in Health Post UK are finally dead, no one cares anymore? Well, I don't know about dead. I think that, I think that um, is probably very premature, but it's certainly, they don't have the, the impact and the clout um, that they perhaps seem to in the past. I mean, we saw... Um, uh, full frontal attack from the Sun and the Mail on Jeremy Corbyn, and it hasn't had um, the impact that it might have had even in 2015. 
Um, so people are much it, does more, seem, it does feel like a change. Yeah, and, and Tom, Tom made the point, that, didn't he? He said, you know, people are very quick to get online and, and issue their own rebuttals to things now and, and quick to point out hypocrisy. And I mean, I don't remember that happening quite as much in 2015. It seems like yeah, you said, it's true. people it are taking it upon themselves a little more now, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, the idea of an instant rebuttal has always been Twitter's uh, advantage, but the dis- difference between 2015 and 2017 is that... In 2015, we had things like Millie Fandom, which seemed to basically just be a sort of niche activity. And a lot of the action was happening on Facebook, uh, and the Tories were targeting Facebook effectively. This time, Labour used Facebook and Twitter very effectively. So they shared lots of videos with millions of views. Things that were positive messages got their vote out, whereas the Tories were attack ads, which, you know, really were just all about Jeremy Corbyn and terrorism. And for a lot of people under 50, it didn't really make any sense anyway. So... There's a real generational divide which Labour has exploited, uh, and never, no one ever thought it would work, but it did work in their favour this time. So let's. So there we've got Jeremy Corbyn, strong and stable leadership, good, lovely, and now the Lib Dems, who have got like no leadership. Here's a little clip of Tim Farron as he announced he's standing down. I seem to have been the subject of suspicion because of what I believe and who my faith is in. In which case we are kidding ourselves if we think we yet live in a tolerant liberal society and that's why i have chosen to step down as leader of the liberal democrats i mean ned's off today in mourning i believe at the fact that tim farrow and we always say it's about ned loving the Dems. i don't know if he does really but it's, it's good it's good joke um tim farrow's gone were we surprised rachel that he went I, I, I was quite surprised, um, but I think he said in his statement that he found it hard to balance leadership with his faith. And obviously, Does that mean that he thinks gay sex is in them? He's always thought it. Because was that basically I don't think we should be that surprised about that, really. Because that's what we always guessed from his, his how uncomfortable he was in answering the question. And to be fair to him, you know, I've written about this, I think there is a sort of big category error between religious belief and political sort of outcomes and rights. Now, a lot of gay people say, well, actually, I feel deeply offended if he says, you know, I'm going to tolerate gay people. I think David Laws has said this today, that, you know, I'm just going to tolerate you. I'll I'll tolerate your views. I'll I'll give you some rights. But actually, I don't really agree with who you are, what you do. Now, that is quite powerful, obviously, and very toxic on the doorstep in in a lot of, you know, metropolitan liberal areas. Um, But I do think I do have some sympathy for, for Farron because, you know, these are his interpretations of his faith. And, you know, if you don't share his faith or his view of that, then what business is it of anyone else as long as he says, I'm going to vote for and promote equal rights? Who's going who's gonna to take over then? Um, well, Joe Swinson is a, an early favourite after being uh, re-elected in Eastern Bartonshire. Um, and I don't know who would be... Um, it's a problem, isn't it? That's a problem with well, Vince it. Cable yeah, Vince is, is the... being talked of as an interim leader, no, but that just sounds like, you know, he's going to be the caretaker holding the janitor's keys for a bit. I mean... Just, it's just him, Ed Day, step back. I know Joe Swinson was a junior minister in the government, but she was, she's not... It's as... a bit odd that the Lib Dems, you know, they've got four women, which is, you know, only two more MPs than they've, they've got knights, you know, in their party. It's just not a lot. So they need a woman, that, and I think Joe Swinson, as a young working mum... She's probably exactly what they need. The big problem, of course, is that she's tarnished by having been a government minister with the Tories. This is true. This is true. But then they're kind of already tarnished by that. Farron had clean skin, don't forget. Clean hands. Voted against tuition fees. You know, they've lost that. 
let's uh, let's turn our attention now. Uh, sorry, we're rushing through stuff because there's just so much to talk about. Um, let's turn our attention now to the Tories. Remember them? They're the ones who are supposed to be in power um, or in government or whatever it is. Um, so Theresa May did a little bit of a reshuffle this week. It started off like really exciting and then very quickly it got quite like, we confirmed Priti Patel will stay. <laughs> oh, great. You know. um, there was a few changes. Liz Truss got it in the neck. Liz Truss was ousted as Justice Secretary and demoted to Chief Secretary to the Treasury. And then for ages, like, nothing else changed. So we were thinking, like, is this whole thing just to be about to annoy Liz Truss? And then <laughs> Michael Gove came back at DEFRA. Yeah. Right? What's that about? What a job. It's really not about DEFRA, obviously. It's all about having a, another big Brexiteer beast around the table. Um, and, you know, don't forget, Michael Gove is a very good, very, very good arguer. And his presence will be felt in Cabinet. And let's be honest, some of those people in Cabinet, the other Brexiteers, aren't as eloquent as he is. So you've got people who are actually going to make a strong case, along with Boris. And I think that was a signal to the party as well as the, the, the Steve Baker move, the, the former yeah. uh, arch Eurosceptic given a job at the Brexit department. Um, those are just signals to the party that, look, OK, you've got me where you want me. You know, I'm your hostage. This is what Theresa May is basically saying. You know, I'll, I'll cave into your demands on the, on the, on the soft Brexiteer wing of the party and the hard Brexiteer wing of the party. You know, I've, I've just got to try and balance you out now. Uh, um, one of the people she did sack was Rob Halfon, who was a junior minister, um, and he's very much the kind of thinks the the Tory party should be a kind of trade union for working people. And here he is on Newsnight um, talking about how he would change the party. Awesome. I think we need a fundamental rebranding. That's why I'm suggesting that we actually change our name to the Workers' Party or the Conservative the Workers', workers party. party. But it can't just be a rebranding, it can't just be a slogan. I mean, the Prime Minister said we were the Workers' Party at the party conference, but we've got to make it mean something. And I think that we have to actually build our policies based on five pillars. We should be a real modern trade union movement for the British people. Rob Halfon there said it should be a completely different name for the party, it should be the Workers' Party. It sounds a bit Corbyn-esque. Um, and also Mike Penning, who we heard from earlier on, has gone. And these are two people who you could kind of... A bit more normal, a bit more relatable. Why has Theresa May got rid of these guys? Surely these are people you want around the table. Um, well, you, you would have thought so, yeah, especially considering um, the result of the election. But So it does look like that she's not interested in blue-collar conservatism yeah. anymore and perhaps is, maybe she's given up on winning back any of those seats in the North that she had so many ambitions for before the election. So it's... A, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the one counterpoint to that is that uh, Jackie Doyle-Price, who's uh, Essex, yep. working-class Tory, one Thurrock, a uh, key... Key Essex marginal, destroyed the UKIP vote down there as well. killed the UKIP vote, has got a job in government. Um, so Theresa May does sound like she has got one eye on that, but I just think it was a bit inept. To What's the helpful stuff? Was that because you're supposed to be close to Osborne? I d that doesn't make sense because make sense she, she then brought into government Claire Perry, who's much more of an Osborne eye. And isn't than David Gork quite an Osborne eye as well? No, David no? Gork's sort of uh, you know middle of the road. But I think I don't think it was Osborne or not Lens. It was I think it was just a sense of she didn't even give him an explanation. No. That's what was bizarre. She just said basically I'm moving people around. No, that's perfectly right for any Prime Minister to do. But if you're in her position, yeah. you don't really irritate that wing of the party that has really tried to do its best on apprenticeships and, and getting that working class vote. So regular listeners, regular listener, hello to you. Hello, James. Know the hello that <laughs> Paul War spends a lot of his time outside the Parliamentary Labour Party meeting. And I do the equivalent for the Tory party, which is the 1922 committee. And normally there's like me, Chris Hope from The Telegraph, James Forsyth from The Spectator, and no one else, because it's always really boring. Oh, but not this week. Everyone came to church like it was bloody Christmas Eve, right? Yes. It was the corridor was full of people waiting for Theresa May to walk along. And she went in and there was a little bit of desk banging and then it got louder and louder and blah, blah, blah. She was in there for about an hour and 10 minutes, took about 25 questions. And 
all the MPs came out like that was that was the Theresa we should have seen during the election campaign. She was wonderful. It's like she managed to impress a room of Tories. I mean, I don't know if that's such the achievement <laughs> you think it is, but it was seen that she said the right thing. She said she was sorry for MPs who'd lost their seats. She said it was my responsibility. She said, I got us into this mess. I will get us out of it. And she said, I'm here as long as you want me to be. I've stuffed envelopes since I was 12 years old or something. So she really sort of laid it on thick. So do we think that that was enough now so there's going to be no leadership challenge in the foreseeable future. Bearing in mind everything we predict is always wrong. Yeah, absolutely. That big health warning. Uh, the feeling I get is that actually no one wants it yet. No one wants it enough. Um, and But they will want it in time. You know, they're just given a, they're gathering their sort of energies and their teams and it's going to happen. But the question is when? Will it be... By the end of the year, will it be spring? I, I, I suspect it might be spring. But it depends entirely how she copes with things like Grenfell Tower. Yeah. You know, off the back of this, the Tories could go into freefall in the polls. Now, I know people don't believe the polls anymore, but boy, will Tory MPs we be, believe salvation polls, be, be deterred from going for any sort of uh, election in the short term anyway. But they may well be deterred from a from they may want to get on with the leadership change really quickly to to start rebuilding the party's support. And that might need a, uh, I don't know when the new leaders will start, but they might have to start sooner rather than later if, if things turn for the worse. And like you said, Rachel, she's gone for that kind of blue Tory kind of working class kind of vote. By getting rid of Halford, it sort of seems to have annoyed that wing of the party. And that's the kind of wing of the party of like your Ruth Davison's and your Stephen Crabbs, right? Who are always touted as the next kind of leadership thing. So do you think they're going to be sort of really sort of getting themselves together now? I think um, Ruth is already on manoeuvres. She's um, made made it pretty clear that her group of Scottish Conservatives will vote as yeah, they Yeah, they are please. her group of Scottish Conservatives, yeah, so absolutely. So she has her own power base. Yeah, so she's, Theresa May has a lot to contend with, and I would, I would agree with Paul. It seems like it's just a matter of time, particularly if events like Grenfell Tower are not dealt with very well. Don't rule out David Davis is my word of warning. You know, he's been written off before, and he might be the the strongest opponent of Boris. Boris will obviously have a campaign, but David Davis might reassure people, particularly all the Brexiteers, that, you yeah. know, uh, I'm a prag pragmatic Brexiteer. Um, so, in true podcast style, I forgot the quiz, but I've got it here. The quiz was on Lib Dem leaders. Do you want oh. it? We'll do it quickly. Quick. Okay, right. There have been one, two, four... Lib Dem leadership He's counting readers. Elections. He's counting on his fingers. There's been four Lib Dem leadership elections since Lib Dems were established in 1988. Right? I want you to tell me who took part in them. Okay. Who took part in the first one in 1988? Which ca which candidates? Yeah. 88? 88. 1988. Jesus. Bob McClellan? No. Go on. <laughs> it's not the best. <laughs> it was Paddy Ashdown. Yeah. And Alan Beath. Beath. Beath, right, okay. Beath of course. Who took part in the one in 1999, Rachel? Give me a name. Um, oh, gosh, no, I don't. I know, I know one of these. So I actually am old enough to have Go been on. in the room when they were all doing the hustings. Don Foster was one of them? No. Yeah, he was. No, he wasn't. He was. He wasn't. <laughs> Maybe he pulled out last minute. Um, was, was that, it's, Who it was, won? Who won? Charlie Kennedy. Charles Kennedy. Won. But Kennedy beat... Ah, Simon Hughes. Simon Hughes, yes. Simon Hughes. I'm sure Don Foster was a runner early on. Uh, David Rendell. Rendell. The old Etonian. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm Bruce. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And uh, Jackie Ballard. Oh, yeah. Who was MP for Taunton yeah. for like four years. Lost in 2001. Went to live in Iran. 
Went to RSPCA as well. Anyway, Don Foster. Can I say that again? I just like yeah, but he it. wasn't there, so you can say Don Foster when you want. But right, two thousand and six. Oh, that was obviously Ming the Merciless. Ming. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Anyone else? Yeah, it was a com- yeah, it was an election. Come I on, remember. I can't remember. God, the Lib Dems are really dull. Lucky Ned's not here. Chris Hewn, remember him, old Jailbird, and Simon Hughes again. Yeah, Simon Hughes is like the Liam Fox of the Lib Dems, isn't he? <laughs> and finally, two thousand and seven. 2007? Yeah. Oh, Lamb. No. No. Who won in 2007? Who did Clegg beat? Clegg must have beaten... Come no. on, Chris Hume. Chris Hume. Yeah. And of oh, course, by that, a wafer. I got it wrong. Yeah, by like 200 votes. Yeah, by a yeah. wafer. Uh, actually, I got it wrong. There was actually a fifth one, because obviously it's the one which Tim Farron won recently. This is a shambles this week. I'm really <laughs> sorry about this. Um, usually we do, in case you missed it, but I think we covered everything. And we also usually do, for Brexit, Farron or Farage, right? Who's happy this week? But we've got a candidate because Farron's gone. I know, it's tragic. What are we going to do instead? We'll have to, you'll have to come up with something good, Owen. So tune in, listener, next week. Yeah, tune in, listener. Um, Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and we'll see you next week. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.